Well, it's my joy to welcome you to Grace Wave Baptist Church, and this is our Sunday School lesson for October 31st of 2021. And for those of you who are uh, both teachers and students who are watching this, and if you look in your Sunday School book and you find that there's a different lesson for October 31st, you can blame me for that. I sent the wrong file to Lindsay. And so uh, you should have a corrected one now. And uh, this lesson is going to reflect what's actually in the New City Catechism. And we're still on the subject of prayer. And the question that they ask is, what is the Lord's Prayer? And so we're going to do a little bit of an analysis on that and see what we can learn from it. And uh, I pray the Lord blesses you as you do that. And sorry for the inconvenience, but uh, sometimes those things happen. And uh, as we think about this being October 31st, I just want to give you a little bit of encouragement. I have heard all of my life that this is the devil's holiday and there's a lot of evil and things like that. Hey, folks, there's evil every day. But there's also blessings every day, too, because on October 31st, regardless of what the world calls it, it's still the day the Lord hath made and we should rejoice and be glad in it. And so... Uh, I don't want to be superstitious on any of that. The devil's no more powerful on October 31st than he is on October 30th. And uh, so we try to use it to redeem the time. And I don't particularly have any love for Halloween or care about it. But I do think it's a great opportunity when people are going to be coming to my door and I can give them candy. There's no sin in that. And I can also give them a gospel tract and uh, try to be generous with what I give them so that they're not automatically anti-reading whatever I, I have. And um, same thing that when I go to a restaurant and I leave a, a tract, you know, as a Christian, you don't want to leave a gospel tract and then leave a cheap tip. You want to put something in there that's substantial and something that gives them uh, positive feelings so that they want to read that um, tract that you leave them. And so I think about just how awesome it is that uh, other times I have people come to my door that I don't really want to be there. And uh, sometimes people come to my door and they're going to come to, you know, as a representative of a cult like Jehovah's Witnesses or something like that. But um, when you think about uh, this holiday, October 31st, those people are coming to your door and you're going to give them something. And it's always a good thing to give and it's always a good thing to uh, witness. And so follow your conscience on all of that. But for me, we want to honor the Lord on that day and redeem the time. And we want to do something good on a time when darkness is uh, promoted. And we want to realize God's sovereign over all of that. And we're going to do what we can to get the gospel out. So uh, don't be afraid of the day and rejoice in it. And also remember that October 31st, 1517, that's the time that Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses on the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany and launched the Reformation. And so it's a great day to celebrate that while the world is looking at darkness and witches and demons and ghosts and scary stuff, we think about this. When he uh, nailed that onto the door, that was a beginning of enlightenment. And the gospel uh, was, I guess we might say, recovered because it had been hidden so long from 
uh, from view and so many things have been added to it. And Luther uh, read in the Bible that the just shall live by faith and it brought him under conviction. And he began to uncover the doctrine of sola scriptura, only scripture, sola fide, only faith, sola gratia, only grace, and solus Christus, only Christ. And that became the cry of the Reformation, which that needs to be our cry in our heart today, that it's always grace only and always faith only, always the Word of God only, and the glory of Christ only. That's, that's what we operate by. So it's a great time to celebrate and to remember our heritage and how the Lord has blessed us. And we need a, a modern Reformation, don't we? And maybe the Lord will use us to do that. It would be kind of neat to think that he would use ordinary average people like us and do something that could shake and change history for the glory of God. So, uh, or maybe if we don't, maybe it's one of our kids or somebody that we teach in Sunday school. I mean, we ought to take the ministry of the word very, very seriously, no matter what, what it might be or what we think it might be or what we were expecting. Just take it and uh, do your very, very best and put your all into it. And that's a word for teachers as you get ready to teach this lesson. Put everything you've got into it. Don't be the casual teacher who just kind of wings it or anything like that. Be the person who prays and who studies and who is well prepared for it because you don't know who is sitting in that class that might really turn out to be somebody that is very special in the history of the kingdom of God. I think if I got to heaven and somebody said, how did your ministry go? Oh, it wasn't very good. You know, I didn't have very many people. And then a Charles Spurgeon or a Billy Graham or somebody like that came up and thanked me for pouring into their life. I don't think I'd be down in the dumps about that. I think if I got to be Charles Spurgeon's mentor, I think I'd be pretty happy about that. Well, the same thing is true for you. Expect the best and the most out of your students and what God is doing in their lives because you never know, do you? And one of the things that I think we are lacking in this area is in just simply praying for people and praying properly. And I think sometimes when we get a little bit of guilt or conviction about praying and uh, we resolve to do it a little better, we don't always do it biblically. We do it with just whatever comes into our head and we try to get something that's quick so we don't have to belabor anything. I mean, seriously, when is the last time that you spent any length of time praying for somebody's soul, praying about the lifestyle that somebody is living, maybe somebody in your class weeping over it? And you uh, read in the Bible about things like that, and that's so far from where we really are. And it makes me wonder, do we really believe in the power of God, and do we really believe in the privilege that we have to pray? Now, this was apparently on the heart and mind of the disciples because uh, the Lord's Prayer, as we call it, which is uh, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
And um, our prayers don't always resemble that. Or if they do, it's because we repeat it mindlessly and thoughtlessly, word for word. When I was growing up in the military chapel, we did the Lord's Prayer every single week, King James Version, of course. And uh, the chaplain would get to a certain part and he would give us our cue. And we pray this in the name of the one who taught us to pray. And then that's when everybody in the congregation started doing our Father, which art in heaven and so forth. And I think you can do that without really getting the point of what Jesus was saying here. This is not a prayer that has mystical, magical power. It's not a, a prayer that is like rubbing a genie's lamp or an incantation or anything. We've got to reject that kind of thing. That's praying like the heathen. That's praying like the Gentiles do. That's not our relationship with God. Our relationship with God is that. It's a relationship that comes about because of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ for our sins. And because he died, and then because he was raised from the dead, where did he go? Well, after 40 days, he ascended to the right hand of God the Father. What's he doing there? Well, in the book of Romans, it says, if we were saved by his death, much more we will be saved by his life, right? Well, what, is he, what does his life mean now? The book of Hebrews tells us he ever lives to make intercession for us. And do you think Jesus is just sitting there at the right hand of the Father and looking down and saying, um, I need to pray for Greg, bless him, Lord, and then moving on to something else? Or you, for that matter? Or do you think maybe it's more like what he did when he told Peter, you're going to deny me? And Peter goes, oh, I would never do that. And the Lord said, Satan has desired you to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith might not fail. Maybe in that we get a little bit of, the, of insight into the intercessory ministry of our high priest as he prays for you and he prays for me, all of us. And that's why he lives and he does that. Never getting tired of it, always knowing what we need, always knowing what we're going to face, always knowing what the devil's plan is, always knowing what the next temptation is going to be, always knowing our trials and our storms and our difficulties. I mean, he's praying for us. Think about that and how wonderful that really is because he really prays for us. Not just an empty, repetitive phrase to, uh, you know, make him not feel guilty, but because he loves us and because he cares for us, he is doing this. So let's look in our Bibles at Luke chapter 11, verse 1. And it says, now Jesus was praying in a certain place. You know, that's not unusual for the Bible to say that or indicate that about the Lord Jesus. And here's the one who is the perfect sinless son of God, and what does he feel the urge and the need to do? To pray, to pray to his father. And you know, uh, the thought crosses my mind, if Jesus needed to pray, we really need to pray and spend time with the father. And notice he does it in a certain place, kind of gives you the idea that he is getting away from the crowds, getting away from the teaching times, getting away from the disciples, and he's just got to have some one-on-one -on -one time. We call it quiet time with God the Father. He needed that and he communed with God and um, it blessed him and helped him. And it says, and when he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, 
teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. Now, are they supposed to pray like John prayed? You know, teach us to pray. You know, John taught his disciples to pray like that. Teach us to pray that way as well. I don't think that's what they meant. I think they were just saying, John taught his disciples to pray, and that's awesome. But how much more awesome would it be for Jesus, the Son of God, to teach us to pray? And when we think about just the question and the things that they were realizing, we come up with some uh, points here that we want to cover as we discuss this. And the first thing is, notice that it is a model prayer. I, I don't suppose there's anything wrong with repeating the Lord's Prayer, but I think it's supposed to be used more as a, uh, maybe we would call it a template for prayer, that Jesus is showing us how it's supposed to be done and what the elements are. Because if it's the only way to pray, well, then you find some contradictions in, in the Bible, and that's not possible. You find that the Apostle Paul and other people that are praying, and even Jesus himself, he doesn't always pray following this form. But you also kind of see the elements that need to be involved in prayer. Um, let's just put it this way. Our depraved instincts will always be wrong. Teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. We want you to teach us in the same way that John taught his disciples. Why? Because we have a tendency to get this wrong. And prayer sometimes can take on different elements depending on what our state of mind is and what our situation might be. Sometimes prayer is nothing more than an expression of just we're panicked and we don't know what to do. So it's an emergency. So break out the prayer and let's do something with it. Sometimes it might be kind of a superstition, I guess you would say. I'm afraid not to pray. It's not really that I love God and I'm drawn to him and I want to relate to him and I want to have his blessing on my life. It's more that I'm, I'm afraid not to because if I don't, my kids might get sick. If I don't, I might lose my job. If I don't, my house might burn down or something like that. You've heard people kind of say things like that. Prayer's not a good luck charm, and it's not to be done uh, in a superstitious manner. It's also not to be done in just a habitual, frivolous, mindless manner. Jesus warned the uh, disciples against praying with what he called vain repetition in the King James. You know what that means? Empty and mindless, thoughtless things. And there are some groups and some people and some church denominations where they have prayers written out. You can open up a prayer book. Is there anything wrong with that? No, it's not a sinful thing to do until you, instead of being enriched by their prayers and thoughtful so that you can pray yourself, you just simply go, oh, that's a good one, and you repeat it, and you don't really know what it means or you don't really put that much thought or heart into it. And so uh, we've got to be careful about this thing of prayer because our depraved instincts will help us to get off track and to get it wrong. Or we make prayer just simply a list of complaints about God. Spurgeon said, complain to God you may, but complain of God you must not. And I think sometimes the things that we talk about come across in a complaining, whining way, as if God is not really doing everything that he promised and he's not really taking care of us. And so we've got to be taught 
to pray properly. And that's what the disciples understood. Teach us to pray. That might not be a bad prayer. Lord, teach me to pray. Teach me to pray. Show me what is supposed to happen. Now, this um, is called the Lord's Prayer, but I guess actually uh, John MacArthur calls it the Disciples' Prayer. And I've always called it the model prayer. This is how it ought to look when we pray. And again, it doesn't have to be repeated as a ritual, but it does give us insight into how the Lord Jesus prayed and how we ought to pray. Uh, second point would be this. It begins with God's glory. If you have a King James version of the Bible or a new King James, it's almost like a sandwich. Hallowed be thy name. And then we have the prayer. And then the other piece of bread is at the bottom. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Why isn't that in the ESV? Because the ESV uses older manuscripts and the, than even existed at the time when the King James is translated. And uh, those words are not in the oldest manuscripts. But nonetheless, they would still be true. They're supported by other passages of Scripture. It is His kingdom, and it is His power, and it is His glory. And we ought never, ever, ever forget that. That ought to always be on our minds. And sometimes we forget it. It's the glory of God that really matters. Some people think that prayer is only effective if I get what I want and feel good about it. But prayer is effective whether we get what we want or what we request or not out of it when our hearts are aimed at the glory of God and we are wanting him to be glorified by whatever he does. And God is glorified when he says yes to our prayers and he does the miracle we want or he provides the, the thing that we want. But he's also glorified when he can, have, uh, can tell us no because he always says no for a good reason. He's a good father. He's a good God. And he's glorified in withholding certain things for us that wouldn't be according to his will or according to his plan or might even be destructive to us. Thank God for unanswered prayers. And other times he says, wait, you remember when uh, David wanted to build a temple and uh, at first Nathan said, do it. You know, God will bless it. He'll be with you. And then later God spoke to Nathan and said, you spoke too soon. Uh, I don't want him building the temple, but I want his son to. And so he said, wait, was that a defeat for David? No, it really wasn't. It just meant that David, you're, you're desiring the right thing. It's just not the right time and you're not the right person. And so David began to gather materials for the temple that Solomon was going to build. Sometimes God says, wait, your prayer is perfectly good. Don't think that when God says, wait, there's something wrong with your prayer. It may be right in the will of God, just not now and not for you. That's not a defeat. That's actually a victory and that glorifies God. So when we think about the glory of God and we think about how we're addressing the Father Himself, the Creator of the universe. What right do I have to come and speak to the Father? I don't think the President would want to hear from me. I'm not sure that the Governor would want to hear from me. I'm not sure the Mayor would want to hear from me. And there are a lot of people that if I were to call them or text them, I would be bugging them. I would be texting at an inopportune time or calling them at a time when they're busy or something like that. But I never have to worry that, about that with God the Father. God the Father, His ear is inclined toward me and toward you, 
And so we pray to the Father and we do it in the name of Jesus. He is the mediator. Paul told Timothy, there's one mediator between God and man. And it's not a local priest. It's not your pastor. It's not anybody like that. It's this, the man Christ Jesus. And you and I can go directly into the presence of the Father anytime, day or night. And we go there praying to the Father in the name of Jesus. And the reason that we pray is what Jesus said at the very beginning of this, hallowed be thy name. We want God's name to be hallowed. We want God's name to be made holy is what that means. And we want that name to be made holy in the way that we use that name, of course. We don't want to use his name in vain, the mindless, empty, thoughtless way that God's name is used. You heard people say, oh my God, and oh good Lord, and you know, things like that. Don't, don't do that. Please don't do that. But don't do it when you pray either. And sometimes we just, uh, you know, pray, dear God, or our Father in heaven, or something like that. And we don't even stop to think about who he is or what that means when we address him in that manner. We just run on to what we really want to get to. And sometimes even when we close our prayer by saying, in Jesus' name, what, what is that, the, uh, putting a postage stamp on it to make sure that the letter has... Uh, enough to get to the addressee or something like that? What, why do we do that? Is it just sounds more religious and saying bye? Or what, what, what's going on? And to pray in the name of Jesus actually means, it's like when somebody says, maybe you've seen an old movie and they, it's a cop and they're telling the bad guy, stop in the name of the law. What is he saying? This is what the law commands. And when we pray in the name of Jesus, it is saying, I pray this because I believe this lines up with the will and the power and the authority of Christ. Now, if you think of it that way, that'll stop and short circuit some of your praying. Lord, I'm so tired of my wife and I think I really need a new one and I claim your promises to give me anything that I want. And I pray this because I believe it to be in accordance with the will of, uh, I can't do that, can I? And that's the way our prayers ought always to be in the will of God. And we want God's name to be made holy in and through our prayers in our own heart. The apostle Peter in his epistle said, sanctify or make holy the Lord in your own heart. I mean, it kind of starts with us. How do we view God and why are we praying and what is the purpose of this? And that's when it comes out in our lives and others ask us, uh, a reason for the hope that is within us. And so it's all about the glory of God. Read John 17 when Jesus spoke about that as well. Thirdly, notice that this prayer covers all aspects of life. I've had people ask before, is it okay for me to pray for a promotion on my job? Is it okay for me to pray for a new car or a new house? Well, of course it is. The Bible says you have not because you ask not. And some people think that prayers ought to be only for spiritual things, that it only ought to be about sin and sanctification and missionaries and salvation. And those certainly should be in there. But we notice when we get to the model prayer that Jesus says, give us this day our daily bread. What is that making reference to? The physical aspects of life. This is what I need to live. This is what I need to survive. And if I'm going around trying to serve God and I'm weak and I'm hungry and I don't have um, 
the proper necessities of life, I'm probably not going to get very far, am I? And most of us won't. And even Jesus had to eat and he had to rest. And um, sometimes he would find him where uh, the King James is kind of funny because it says he would come apart. And Vance Havner said that we need to learn from that because if you don't come apart at the right time, you certainly will come apart at the wrong time. And a uh, little humor there. But uh, Jesus had all of these human needs and uh, just like us. And so he included that in this prayer. Give us this day our daily bread reminds us that we have physical needs and God meets the physical needs as well as the spiritual needs. But notice the other things that are in there. The kingdom of God. How often do you think about God's kingdom? We pray a lot about us and our world and our situation and then we don't think about the big kingdom of God. The will of God is addressed in there. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do you ever think about the will of God? Do you ever think about what he has planned and his sovereignty and his rule? When you think about after the physical needs, the daily bread is addressed. What about sin and forgiveness? Is that not an issue for all of us, even as saved people? We still sin. The book of 1 John tells us that if we say we have no sin, we're a liar and the truth is not in us. But then it goes on in verse 9 to tell us, but if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a beautiful scripture that is. And that confession in uh, th that word confess our sins, it's a verb in the Greek that means continually, constantly confessing our sin. Whenever they come up, we don't wait until the appropriate time or until we can get to church or to, until the confession can be made to the priest or anything like that. We don't do that. We confess it as we do it. And the enemy in your flesh will try to say, uh, this doesn't feel right. I just sinned and now I'm going and asking for forgiveness. That's not from God. The Holy Spirit will continually draw you to the Lord and to agree with God about your sin. It's not so much about naming the sin as it is getting to the place to where we agree with God's assessment of the sin. And we are the ones who live and walk in forgiveness. We think about this prayer and um, we consider the fact that the, um, everything in it, whether it's talking about temptation or whether it's talking about daily bread or even when it's talking about the Father, have you noticed that all the pronouns are plural? It's not just simply my father, it's our father. It's not just simply give me daily bread, but give us our daily bread. It's just as amazing because it includes other people. And it talks about um, God helping me and helping all of us from temptation and also to deliver us or to rescue us from evil. And um, some Greek manuscripts actually say from the evil one. And it's like those times when we wander off from the Lord because he's leading us not into temptation. So what happens when we go running headlong into it? It's probably because we're not following him as closely as we should and we wander off. And sometimes we see it and we run back to him. And that's a good thing to do. Think about Ephesians 6 and the armor of the believer and all of that. But sometimes we get trapped. And what do we do when we get trapped? Well, we call out to Jesus. And what does he do? He is the one who rescues. He delivers us 
from the evil one. So all of that, notice it's, it's a comprehensive prayer that addresses all of the issues of life. Number four, notice that its concern is not selfish. And we'll piggyback that on to the last thing that I said, that um, this prayer is really about God. Think about it. It starts with him, our father in heaven, right? We're addressing him. And then it's hallowed be thy name. We want your name to be made great. And then right after that, it's about your kingdom. We want your kingdom to come for you to rule and reign in us and and through us to rule and reign on this sinful world. And we're also praying for that day when the Lord Jesus will return and set up his kingdom here on earth. We're praying about his will. We want your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. How is his will done in heaven? Completely? Yeah. Without resistance? Yeah. With joy and gladness? Yeah. That's the way we want his will to be done on earth because so many times we find ourselves accomplishing the will of God, but we're down in the mouth about it. We're kind of resistant to it. It's, it's kind of done by force of circumstances or out of just a sheer legalistic duty. But uh, Jesus says it's about the will of God being done like it's done in heaven. And then again, I'll call your attention to all of the plural pronouns in there. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever noticed that? Do you ever pray like that? To where it's not just about you and what you're feeling, what you're thinking, or what you need, but you're concerned with other people. You know, the Bible tells us that we are to remember persecuted believers. And sometimes we get so caught up in what's happening in our own country, and it's bad. Granted, it's bad. But it's worse in a lot of other places. And there are a lot of believers just like you that are in prison for their faith. There are pastors like me that are in prison for their faith. There are families who are absent from someone that they love because that loved one is in prison for their faith. I mean, all kinds of things like that. We're to remember that. We're to remember missionaries who are laboring on a foreign field and they're working hard to learn the language. They're working hard to translate the gospel into the language of the people there. They're working hard to build relationships, or in some cases, they're working hard just to stay alive and to keep their family safe. We shouldn't take that for granted. It's not like it is for us in every situation. We need to remember that. This is not normal. Normal Christianity around the world today is to be persecuted. Normal Christianity throughout church history is to be persecuted. What we have enjoyed here in the United States, we ought to thank God for, and that ought to make us more passionate about what's going on in the other parts of the world. In fact, the Bible commands us to pray for kings and all who are in authority. Have you done that lately? And not just for our president, but what about the presidents of other countries? and other movements. We ought to be praying for them as well. So um, this prayer tells us that that our praying needs to go out and expand far beyond just me and mine and uh, us four and no more, someone says. And so maybe that's why our prayers don't get answered. Going to the book of James chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, you desire and do not have, so you murder, you covet, and cannot obtain... So you fight and quarrel, and you do not have because you do not ask. Important principle. 
If you want it, you might as well ask for it. But then he says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. In other words, you can have the wrong motive for what you are asking for. And here's the good news. God knows how to clear that up. God knows how to change that. And he wants to get you and me to a place spiritually where our prayers line up with his will, with his heart, with his word, so that he can answer because he delights in answering our prayers. But he's a good father. He's not going to give you something that is going to hurt you, going to harm you, or going to keep you from being everything you're supposed to be. Oh, when you think about parents that tell their kids, no, you cannot have a sucker right now. You haven't eaten your broccoli yet. Is that because the parents are just mean and harsh and want to ruin the child's life? Or maybe is it because the parents know that what the child eats in the broccoli is going to be much more beneficial to them. So no on this for now until you eat your broccoli. And maybe our heavenly father is ever bit as loving that there are times he tells us no because we're praying for lollipops when we need to be having our broccoli because, who, or maybe I should say our spinach because we never know when we're going to have a Popeye moment. Some of you will get that and we're going to need that. And so uh, sometimes we ask for the wrong things and we ask sometimes for the right things, but in the wrong way that we might glorify ourselves. We're asking, as the King James Version says, asking amiss. We're off base. We're wrong about um, why we're asking for it. So the conclusion is a good thing to consider. Are your prayers anything like the model prayer? Anything like it. Sometimes you'll hear little kids and they've been taught to pray, God is great, God is good, let us thank him for our food or something like that. And uh, that doesn't sound anything like the model prayer, does it? But then again, maybe it does. Thanking God for the food, that's the daily bread part of it. God is great, God is good, that's the glory of God and the praise of God that we might see in it. So maybe even in a little simple prayer like that, if we think about it and put our heart in it, maybe that's more God honoring and answerable than some of the long prayers that we prayed, thinking that our formulas, thinking that our words, thinking that our wording would somehow force God to have to answer our prayer. Well, you don't force God to do anything. He's sovereign and he's the king. It's an honor to pray with him. And prayer is building our relationship with God. And it is also moving our heart to match up with the heart of God. Because God is an immovable force. You're never going to get him to move or change to see things your way. But oh, how wonderful it is when my will lines up with his, when my heart lines up with his, when I pray simply for the sheer joy of just spending time with him and loving him and glorifying him, then you're going to see some things happen. So maybe um, that gives you some insight as you look at your own prayer life and even as you look at the Lord's prayer. May God be pleased to raise up intercessors in our church, in our families, and in our nation, and in this world today, because, oh, do we ever, ever need it desperately, desperately. John Knox was a reformer in Scotland, and Mary, Queen of Scots, Bloody Mary, said this one time, I fear John Knox's prayers more than I fear the armies of Scotland. 
Boy, wouldn't that be wonderful if that could be said of us. May God grant it. And thank you so much for your time. And thank you for watching this video or listening as the case may be. And may the Lord bless you and bless you richly.